Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with two-time Cy Young Award winner and 1985 World Series MVP, Brett Saberhagen. On the mound is the cool and composed one, and it's a cliche to say that, but how else do you describe Brett Saberhagen? Other than very talented. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Today on the program, we got a two-time Cy Young Award winner and the 1985 World Series MVP. Most importantly, he spells his name correctly. Brett with one T. Welcome, Brett Saberhagen. Sabes, welcome to the podcast. Good to appreciate you having me on, Booney. Yeah, it's been a while. You've been in, uh, you've been in Mexico last we were couple in Mexico weeks. Mexico for a little bit. Yeah, so a week. Um, doing a wonderful uh, little getaway. Uh, you know how COVID's been with everybody, but uh, Mexico will let you come in without a COVID test, but you have to have a COVID test to get back. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to throw something out there real quick. Third Home Go hooked us up with a beautiful place um, right on the Pacific. And uh, it was it was pretty awesome. Really, really, really cool stuff. Um, as uh, everybody probably wanting to get out and about uh, with, uh, you know, what's going on um, in the world nowadays. So it's kind of tough to make that call whether you should do it or not. But we've been confined and uh, – uh, my wife and I, Candace, uh, took a few friends and, uh, we got out there and we got back safely. Uh, no, uh, no problems. So saves what happens? All right. You go to Mexico, you, you're clear, you got the clear bill of health. If you're coming back and you test positive, what happens? They, uh, you actually, we tested at the resort and, um, they would have put us up on uh, another one of their properties for 14 days. So honestly, uh, somebody was making a joke. It was like, Hey, maybe we should start just touching everything and not wearing a mask and uh, spend another 14 days in Mexico. The weather was, uh, was great. Um, but, uh, always good to get back home and, and get stuff done. But, uh, yeah, that's what they would have done. They would have put us up uh, for 14 days until we were uh, clear and free. All right, so let's get back to the beginning. You're born you're born in Illinois, but you grew up in Reseda, California. I want to talk about Sage, San Fernando Valley. Yeah, yeah, by the Karate Kid. Right, exactly. Ray, Ray Machi. Tell me about um, tell me about the uh, growing up in in Southern Cal and about your childhood. Well, uh, yeah, uh, you know things have changed nowadays from what. To, what the players in baseball and actually sports in general has changed so much. It's a a drastic change where um, you probably did the same thing. You grew up, you played little league, uh, you went to all stars. um, And then after all stars, you went to the next sport and you played either basketball or football or whatever it might've been. And uh, same thing when you got to high school, you played uh, your high school team and then you played American Legion ball and uh, there was no travel teams. Um, There was no, uh, you know, uh, man, not, not mandatory, but, uh, you know, nowadays these kids have, you know, uh, a hitting coach, a pitching coach, a nutrition coach, a strength coach, a psych coach. Um, they, and they play in whatever sport it is year round. And I'm a big, uh, proponent of 
actually playing multiple sports and getting your body to relax and rest from the particular sport that you're playing. And even as you know, Bonilla, you're playing the big leagues. You got to shut your body down for a period of time and let it recoup and then work your way back up into spring training and uh, get ready for the season. Um, uh, so yeah, growing up in, in, in California was awesome. Um, you know, we were able to be outside on a nonstop basis. Um, yeah, my grandfather who actually coached American Legion ball back in Illinois, he was the one that actually got me, uh, liking baseball and got me involved in baseball until I was nine years old. So for my first two years of little league ball in California, I would go back and visit my grandparents in uh, Chicago and I would play a half a season finishing up in Chicago because their season started later because of weather. So I would play, you know, the full season in California and then go back to Illinois and play another half of a season in Illinois. So that was kind of cool. But then, you know, all stars and he played a little bit longer into the season um, as I became 10, 11 years old uh, that I wasn't able to do that. But um, I love California. And I'm sure you could speak highly about California and, getting outside, playing over the line, and uh, you name it, we would do it out here. But we were always outdoors. Yeah, I agree with you, too, on the, on the uh, you know, playing multiple sports growing up. Today we're getting, you know, the society today, it's so specialized. And, oh, if, you, if you're playing hoops, you can't play in the baseball. Well, it always comes down to how good are you. If you're the best player on the team, that coach is going to say, all right, well, we'd love to have you whenever your hoop season's over. You know, if you're mediocre, it's like, you're not playing, you know, and I try to tell my kids that. Right. And I tell my kids that that's, that's life. You know, if you're the CEO of a company and you're a jerk, but you're getting the job done, guess what? We're going to put up with you. But I think, you know, in today's age, we get too wrapped up with little Johnny's going to the big leagues. And he's just got to, like you said, have this coach and that coach and you're around. Man, I, I just like to see kids being kids and, and just enjoying their childhood. And and it's it's cool to go from your little league baseball season to, you know, whatever you pop Warner to to basketball. I think other sports transcend other sports. So I think by playing football and, and the way your body moves there, it helps you on the baseball field. And like you said, it gives you a break from, if you're a pitcher, gives your arm a break for a while. Now you're doing something else, but uh, I don't know. I, I think as I think it ebb and flows and we're going through that time period right now. And, and economically, you know, you see people see what, what the big boys are making at the top level. So, so it's, you know, it's enticing to, oh, we're just going to specialize. But uh, I'd like to see the kids yeah. getting back to being kids. And as you know, Saves, we played this game a long time. It gets serious soon enough. You know, it becomes a job soon enough. And, and I, I wish more more kids and more parents would be aware that, you know, when they're 20 or they're 25 years old and they're out there in the real world, they're looking back and say, man, remember Little League, how much fun that was? And remember, you know, remember Pop Warner football, how, how much fun that was? And uh, I don't know. I'd love to see us get back to that. Well, uh, and but, I think I think a, lo- a lot of parents can turn kids off on whatever sport they're playing because that's all they're doing and they're pounding it down their throat. And it's like, you got to be this. You got to do this. You got to keep doing this. And I've seen it, and it's it's it, it kind of sucks um, sitting outside looking at another. And a lot of times the kids have pretty good talent too, but I think the parents can actually burn the kids out on a particular sport by just pounding it down their throat on a regular basis. But um, 
Yeah. Um, I, and so growing up, uh, again, I, I, I almost uh, went to uh, your alma mater at uh, USC, and I would have been there actually with Randy Johnson and Mark McGuire if I had chosen to go to college to play ball rather than uh, um, signing right out of high school professionally. But I think it came down for me that I wasn't that great of an, uh, a student. And um, so here's a funny thing. UCLA wanted to give me a scholarship and they looked at my transcripts and said, Brett, we'd love to have you, uh, you know, come here, but we can't get you in with, with your, you know, your transcripts. And USC looked at him and said, we'll give you a full ride, Brett. <laughs> There's <laughs> just the difference between those two schools at the time. And uh, now I know academics has gotten a lot more stringent and you got to go to school on that. But um, um, I, I, again, I, I got to the world series in a quick period of time, so I don't have any regrets, but um, you know, I, I, it was, it was a tough decision for me because um, I, I, I just wanted to play and felt like I had an opportunity to play shortstop and pitch if I would have gone to SC. So uh, um, yeah, I would have been a, a Trojan just like you, buddy. Well, yeah, and, and you know when I'm when I'm digging in, and and we've known each other for a long time, and and uh, but when I really got down to it and started looking up saves in high school, it, it's it's really a remarkable story you've got. So we go, let's fast forward to 1982, and for the people out there listening to the podcast in Southern Cal, I, I grew up in Orange County. Uh, you were north of of where I grew up, but. It's kind of at the end of the season uh, in the CIF type tournament, your reward to get into the finals is we used to play at either Anaheim Stadium or Dodger Stadium. So it's 82. You end up winning the uh, you're playing at pitching at Dodger Stadium and you win the L.A. City Championship. That same year, you get drafted in the 19th round by the Royals. Like you said, you were you were. You had the SC in your back pocket, but you end up signing. Two years later, you're in the big leagues at 19 years old. And in 1985, you win the Cy Young, and you're the World Series MVP. This, this, this type of stuff doesn't happen. This isn't real life saves. That, I mean, that's such a unique story. How'd you go from pitching in the L.A. City Championship game at Dodger Stadium as an amateur, spend only one year in the minor leagues, and, and next thing you know, you're, you're, you're winning Cy Young's at age 20? Well, right place at the right time uh, is, is a big factor. So, um, uh, so I, I'll, I'll start real quick. I was drafted in the 19th round. I should have been a lot higher draft. I should have been probably the top five rounds. Probably fifth that's, what, that's, rounds. What I, that's what I was um, thinking when I was looking at it. Because if you had given the impression I'm going to USC, sometimes you get dropped down in the draft. So, yeah, I wanted you to clarify that. It, that that really wasn't my uh, – well, again, yes, it, it ended up happening where I was threatening to go to SC, so I got a little bit more money. But what happened was I had some – I came out my basketball season – into baseball season, all the scouts are out there my, my senior year, and I'm trying to impress them my first game out where I hadn't taken enough time and, uh, you know, and working my way to throw as many innings in uh, as hard as I was. But I was trying to impress right away. I ended up getting some tendonitis in my shoulder. Um, I couldn't, couldn't throw. I had to get a bunch of deep, deep tissue work done, started playing first base, then went to finally shortstop, and then I got back up on the mound. When I got back up on the mound, all the scouts kind of disappeared after my first start because I wasn't throwing nearly as hard as I had been prior to that. 
So um, one scout guy, Hanson, followed me throughout the, the whole high school year. I progressively got better. They drafted me as a shortstop um, and uh, before the actual playoffs started, um, and he had seen my, my shoulder getting better and stronger and throwing uh, with better velocity and that. So I go through the playoffs. I throw three out of four games, and then the championship game at Dodger Stadium, I throw a no-hitter, and they said, um, we're going to use you as a pitcher, not as a shortstop. So um, that's kind of how that fell into place. And by the time I you know, finished off the playoffs after the draft happened, the stock value definitely went back up. So, um, yeah, and then my uh, first year, minor leagues, double A, got called up to triple A halfway or uh, single A, got called up to double A halfway through the season. So I spent three months in uh, Fort Myers, two months in Jacksonville, Florida. Got a chance to go to spring training as a non-roster player uh, my second year. And um, I, I impressed uh, the guys, I guess, well enough to, to be taken uh, with the big club out of spring training. I was hoping to make the triple A team. But um, there was a couple of guys, like I said, right place, right time. Um, Dennis Leonard and uh, Larry Gura were both uh, injured and hurt and weren't pitching. So it opened up a couple of spots. So that's why they took uh, actually myself and Mark Gubaza, um at the same time uh, up to the big leagues. And um, David Cohn probably would have been in my spot had he not uh, covered home plate. And um, a guy slid in and uh, took his knee out and had to have knee surgery. So I kind of jumped ahead of uh, David Cohn um, because of that. And um, yeah, kind of the rest is, is history. But um, what honestly, I think if you look at my career and, you know, odd even year, you can look at that stuff and that. But I really had unbelievable seasons when I had veteran guys behind the plate for me, such as Jim Sumberg, who caught, I don't know how many of them, uh, Nolan Ryan's no hitters, just very smart, great, great receiver. Um, just in, in touch with what you want to do out on the mound. Um, don't have to shake off a lot. And then this guy, uh, happens to come in uh, a few years later named Bob Boone, who, uh, was just, uh, one of the best that I've ever thrown to, um, well, if not the best, uh, I don't know who would be, but he just, again, on the same wavelength as you, you don't have to shake off, knows what you want to throw, knows where you want to throw it, um, and just really uh, a great receiver. He made it look easy back there. So I really give a lot of credit to those guys. There's two other guys that um, uh, I love to throw to was uh, Jason Veritek, who was a great receiver, and also Charlie O'Brien. Um, so when you get those veteran guys back there that really are great at their craft, um, it makes the pitchers, it, it'll make any pitcher better. And um, your dad was one of those guys that really, um, I won my second Cy Young with him behind the plate. Yeah, you tell, and, and I saw that and it was the odd even, and I was thinking before the podcast today, how many times has, has Brett been asked that question, the odd even years? You know, there's a lot of that goes into that. There were injuries in certain years, and, and it just happened to fall that Correct. way, your best years. So I, I didn't want to get into the hokey part of that. But I think you bring up a great point with the catchers, and I can just speak on the hitting side. Man, I as a hitter, I didn't like it. It didn't matter who was on the mound. I didn't like it when I had a smart receiver back there. Not a guy that I was worried about throwing me throwing me out, trying to steal second base, but the guy that would just be thinking with me in the box, reading my body language, reading my takes. Almost and you mentioned Veritech, and that bring you know, that was guy right in the middle of my generation. 
uh, I'd go to Boston. It didn't matter who was, who was on the mound because I knew Jason was going to be playing that chess game with me behind the plate. And I didn't like somebody thinking with me. Now I got to change my thought process. But I think you hit on a great point. How, how, how great it is having a receiver back there that you're in tune with. And, and you mentioned dad, you know, you, through the years, is, I've heard from a lot of guys that, that pitched uh, to my dad. And, uh, you know, the last thing I ever did was study the catching position. But, but yeah, I think it's pretty cool that, you know, he was as good as he was. And I've, I've heard it from more than one guy. It's, it's nice to hear it. Uh, makes dad feel good. He's getting a little bit older now. So he'll be listening to this going, yeah, Sabe's got my back. So that's very cool. What I want to talk about, I want to talk about that 85 season. And how awesome it was. I mean, start to finish, you win your first Cy Young Award, you win another one in 89. But getting to the World Series, and I remember that was, a, that was a, the Don Dinkinger uh, call in game six of that World Series. You win game three, you beat Joaquin Andujar, and then game six, there's that controversial call that gets you guys to game seven. Once again, you're locked up with Andujar again. You end up pitching a shutout, nine-inning shutout. But tell me about – I was reading about that fifth inning, and I went back and I watched some footage. Fifth inning, all hell breaks loose. Dinkager's behind the plate now, and Andujar ends up getting – does he get tossed? T- just take me through uh, that game seven. Well, um, yes. Yeah, so Don missed the call in game six at first base. And then uh, as the rotation goes, um, the guy from first base, the next game goes behind the plate. So, of course, game seven, Don's behind the plate. Um, uh, and actually, John Tudor started. He, uh, he had a little problems. And he was having, un- unknownst to us, he was, his, his arm was bothering him. And um, some of the guys said, we don't really know how he was able to do what he did during that series. But um, Tudor started game, I think it was one, four, and seven. And Andujar came in shortly after they took out, um, I think he he, um, came in after Tudor. Um, We got on them a little bit early, um, fortunately, and made my job easier. But uh, yeah, Joaquin was still fired up from the from the night before call with Don Denkinger, and there was a couple of pitches uh, that uh, he thought were strikes that were called balls, and um, sure enough, um, the the Latin flare came out, and um, uh, it was good that there was a few guys that got between them because I think he wanted to really hurt Don Denkinger. Um, but uh, yeah, um, from what I understand. Uh, there were uh, some toilets broken in the clubhouse with baseball bats afterwards. And I don't know what other kinds of damages done. Um, I think there were some fans that were broken and uh, that, that were up in, uh, in, in the clubhouse as well. I have no idea all the exact damage, but um, there, it all came down to not, uh, uh, not having that call um, screwed up the night before, which kind of carried over into game seven. And correct me if I'm wrong, your firstborn was born the night before game seven. Yeah, Drew. So, uh, yeah, and uh, honestly, that that was kind of almost a, a blessing in disguise, Booney, was that uh, it took my mind off of a lot of things. So Drew was born the morning of game six, came to the clubhouse with cigars and stuff after – after game six, I go back to the hospital to visit Janine and, and Drew in the hospital, hang out with them, go home, get a good night's sleep. It's a night game the next night. 
So I'm able to sleep in, get my rest, go to the hospital before, come to the ballpark. But by the time I got to the ballpark, that's when, you know, kind of reality set in. It's like, okay, game seven of the World Series. Um, I had just pitched an unbelievable season. You know, my second year in the big leagues, my second and my, my best down, I win 20 games and I'm pitching in game seven. And all I kept thinking about is don't screw this up. Don't let your fans down. Don't let your teammates down. Um, don't let anybody down. Um, and so, yeah, all of a sudden when I got to the clubhouse, that's finally when it kicked in. And honestly, uh, I, I think the first two innings, I really couldn't feel my feet touching the ground. I was just kind of so uh, amped up. And um, normally, as you know, as a player, you know, you, you get that uh, adrenaline going and the emotions flying. But as soon as you usually step into the box or as soon as you get up on the mound for the first pitch, take a deep breath and let's go. It's, it's game time. But a lot of it is anticipation and on how you're going to approach different situations, who you, you know, you, you might have to work around in a game. Um, what's working for you um, for that particular game? Because you're, you went, you know, you swung the bat before the game, you know, um, how am I feeling? Am I sore? And, you know, or how I was throwing in the bullpen before. So a lot of things go on, but usually when you get onto the field and sometimes, you know, maybe a, a game's a little bit bigger than the next and, Maybe it takes a batter to get calmed down in that, but that particular game, it took me a few innings to actually get my nerves um, kind of calmed down. And uh, yeah, so it, but I mean, game seven, I, it's, there's 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 not one that's bigger, that's for sure. So skip a, skip ahead a few years, and uh, when I have the pleasure of meeting Saberhagen for the first time, so I'm uh, let me set the stage a little bit. So it's 1989. I'm finishing my freshman year at USC. I, so I go to the Alaska League, which is a summer league, college league. And uh, I'm away all summer. And on the way home, you know, I haven't seen mom and dad in a while. So the Royals happen to be in town in Seattle. So we, we get my flight arrangements so I can stop in Seattle and visit mom and dad. You know, you guys are, are, are playing the Mariners. And I'll just stop and see mom and dad for a couple of days. And, and that's when we meet for the first time. I'm this, you know, coming out, coming off my freshman year in Alaska. Now I'm with the big guys in, in, in the big leagues. And uh, I think that was the series where Bo made that miraculous throw. You see it all the time on MLB Network and ESPN Classic Games when Harold gets thrown out at the plate. I think that was the, the game, the first game I went to. But – you decide that you're going to take young Brett Boone out on the town with the big boys, this college kid. And uh, tell me how that went when, when you had to get permission from my dad, who was the veteran catcher at the time. You know, I think dad at that time was 40, 41 years old. You're the young whippersnapper still. Uh, tell me how that that went with dad, because I know I know what happened after that. But uh, set uh, that I set it up for you, Saves. Tell me how you remember it. So, yes, we, we, we hang out. Um, I believe we go to a local little bar right across the – and, yeah, I, 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 Gooby and I both tell your dad that, uh, hey, uh, we want to take uh, uh, Brett out for, uh, for a few, few cocktails. And he's all right with it. So it's like, okay. Um, so needless to say, we stop off across the street from the ballpark and, and have a, a few uh, beverages. Um, and then 
we decide after that, um, and we might even close the bar down. Um, we go back to the hotel, and there's a bunch of us. I think Charlie Liebrand actually found golf on in uh, one of the rooms that we were hanging out in. And um, anyways, we had uh, um, a few more adult beverages and um, uh, probably a few shots in there, so on and so forth. All I can remember is the story that we got the next day of you um, and how things transpired. Um, you couldn't get your key to work in the door and you were staying in mom and dad's room. So um, I think finally, after all the ruckus, I think Sue finally came to the door because I think the lock was across it anyways. So you couldn't get in regardless. As soon as you came walking into the room, your dad says you trip over the suitcase, tumble, fall, and... Um, Needless to say, Pops said, Brett will not allow to be hanging out with you or Mark Gubazaw anymore after this trip. <laughs> but so you it, it were kind of locked down from us. <laughs> it, it was the worst because it's, it's like, you know, you're just this, you've been off in college for one year. You're going out with the, with the big boys. You come home. You said it just perfect. I walked in. There's a suitcase. It's dark in the room. I mean, who's who's sleeping with mom and dad in the same, you know, in the same hotel room? But I was that particular trip. I trip over the suitcase, fall. It's almost like my mom's laughing a little bit, but doesn't want to laugh. I just remember the next morning we had like breakfast at 730 with my aunt and my dad's just kind of hovering over me. I got a headache and he's going, get up. I said, Pops, come on. He goes, you want to go out with the big boys? You're going to get up and you're going to do it. Uh, next thing you know, I'm at <laughs> I'm at breakfast at 730 with my aunt, eyes red. And uh, that was my first taste of the big leagues, even though I wasn't there yet. But, uh, yeah, that was <laughs> that, that was one for the ages. Unbelievable. OK, I want to I want to talk about three. Three guys that are just, I mean, huge as far as Kansas City Royal legends. Uh, the obvious one is uh, George Brett, Hall of Famer. Um, talk a little bit about George. Well, George is uh, the best teammate you can possibly can have. Um, he was, he would be vocal when it would be time, but not, not so much. He always led by example. Um, how he played on the field. Um, what he was able to do, how he, you know, came through in the clutch um, time and time again. Um, so he was an unbelievable teammate um, to have. Uh, and I'm sure you've come across a few of the guys like that now, and you could have been one of those guys yourself with the younger players. Um, so I, I love the fact that our, when we made the club in, in 1984, Mark Gubas on myself, he, uh, he said, Hey, listen, um, you're going to stay with me. Um, you guys don't have a place to stay. Um, I didn't have a vehicle. Uh, so he let me use his Bronco. He wouldn't let me use the Mercedes, but he would let me use the Bronco <laughs> until my car showed up. Um, so, uh, we lived with him for a month. And then after I think I was driving him crazy, he found us a place down in the plaza to stay. We make the playoffs that year. Um, our, our kind of, Timetable ran out with our lease for the apartment, Mark Gubazon and myself. So we moved back in with him for the playoffs when we played Detroit um, and uh, stayed with him a few extra days. But just a, a guy that would take the young players under their wing. Um, you weren't allowed to pay for anything. Anything you needed, it was taken care of. 
um, just made you feel like uh, you're you're a part of something. And um, I think myself and Mark came up. Um, that was we were able to kind of hang out and do stuff together. It might have been a little tougher for either one of us if we would have been around just a bunch of veteran guys and not knowing where we fit. Um, but he made us feel like we were part of the team. So George's ultimate uh, player friend, um, just uh, a, a great baseball ambassador. Next guy I want to talk about who, who you know, we lost <laughs> earlier than, than we should have. He died from brain cancer, but uh, a lot of legendary stories about him. He's a Hall of Famer with, with the Royals, Dick Hauser. Well, uh, yeah, Dick uh, um, was uh, – and again, I was only around him for a short period of time, but as, as you said, as a 19-year-old – um, he had uh, the faith and the, the belief in me as a 19-year-old to bring me to the big leagues um, and um, give me that opportunity. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a brief uh, time that I was actually able to be around him. But I, here's, here's the best way to put Dick Hauser and what he meant to, to a lot of players. He had he'd gone through the Yankees organization. He had been in the postseason a bunch of times. He had never won a postseason game. So um, fast, fast forward, he um, uh, with the Royals now, and we go and play against Detroit in the American League Championship Series. And back in 1984, there was no uh, uh, wild card or anything. So there was two teams out of the American League, American League East, American League West, National League East, National League West. There was only four teams that made the playoffs out of everybody. So we, our first series is for the American League Championship Series against Detroit, and we lose three straight to them. And they go on and win the World Series. So he still hasn't won a postseason game. We go to the playoffs the following year, um, and we lose our first two games again. So he still hasn't won a game. Um, we come back and win the series um, uh, three games uh, or four games to three in the seventh game against Toronto. But the final out of the first postseason um, victory that Dick Hauser got was a fly ball to George Brett, um, a pop-up in the infield. He caught it. After he caught it, he ran straight to Dick Hauser and presented him with that game ball. That's the type of guy he was and what he meant to uh, uh, his players. And last but not least, and this is the guy that, that kind of is amazing to everybody. And I, and I got to, I played against him a little bit. You played with him, but just the stuff he could do on a field, uh, Bo Jackson. Yeah, Bo was, um, uh, honestly, he's, he's the best, best athlete, not necessarily baseball player, but the best all around athlete um, that I've ever seen. And you really never wanted to miss, miss an inning that he was actually playing in a game. Um, just because you never knew how far he was going to hit the ball, whether he was going to run up a wall. Um, uh, you know, his batting practice was just, you, you love to watch him take batting practice and he can hit the ball just as far left-handed um, as he could right-handed when he connected with it. Um, but yeah, as you spoke about uh, Bo, um, you know, uh, Harold Reynolds, it's uh, two outs, three, two count. He's running on the pitch in, in Seattle um, I forget who was up, hits, hit the ball over his head. Bo uh, re- receives it uh, barehanded in the outfield, uh, one bounce off the wall and throws a strike to your dad at home plate to get Harold Reynolds out, who is a, a, a pretty damn good runner and, and very quick. 
Um, and and just if, if you just think about that, it's three and two. You're running as soon as the pitcher goes home, and the ball's in the air over his head, and and, and he still gets thrown out at the plate. I think Harold Reynolds still scratches his head to this day how that was done. But that was one, for instance. But So Bo and I had a great relationship. Um, we locked her next to each other, and I would always just kind of get under his skin as much as possible without getting killed by him. But um, so, uh, for instance, you know, I get, get, he loved the archery stuff and he was into hunting and all that. He would bring in, in the clubhouse, I get, get this, he's in the clubhouse, he's got his archery in there and he's got um, uh, the target that he's shooting into. But instead of shooting into the target, he takes my baseball card and uses that as target practice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think it was some kind of voodoo something or another, but uh, just his strength and his ability was so s- silly. Um, there was one time that somebody sent in a birthday cake for somebody and the veteran guys or the guys that have been around for a little bit always would go, Hey, to the young guys and you would get them to smell the cake. And, um, and what we used to say is, I, I don't think we should eat this cake. It smells sour. I don't know. What do you think? So I got Bo to buy in on this and the, the cake was on this table sitting out and he got his nose probably about two inches, three inches from the cake. And I take my hand and on the back of his neck, push as hard as I can to get his face smashed in this cake. Well, it didn't work out too well. His neck did not budge. <laughs> so I never got it in the cake. And then he proceeds to chase me around this table. And um, I, I don't think I've ever run that fast in my life. So he finally stops on the other side of the table um, from me. And he's, he's like, okay, uh, I'm done. And he jumps from his side of the table to my side of the table without running and jumping over this table. Just his leaping ability jumps over this table and grabs onto me. Just, he, he was just, uh, 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 just something that a uh, unique guy that doesn't come around very often. And, you know, you talk about the two sports stars and so on and so forth. I know there's been a lot of them, but in, in my eyes, you know, and again, I, I'm, I might be biased because I uh, played with them and that um, just the unbelievable talent, the best two sport, I, you know, guy that was ever around. I know Dave Winfield had, you know, three sports that he was great at and could have been playing professionally at, at all three uh, basketball, football, and baseball. Um, but Bo was just ridiculous. So we get to 91, your last year with the, with the Kansas City Royals. Pitch no hitter. Tell me about that. Yeah, um, I've come close um, in the past um, with no hitters, uh, you know, getting into the eighth inning. I don't know if I ever got in the ninth inning or not, but um, had a couple opportunities and just didn't happen. Um, this particular game, um, Kirk Gibson was in left field and he kind of um, – Miss, missed read a ball ball off his glove and um, they called it an error. I believe that was like in the fifth inning. He was all pissed off that they called it an error. He comes back into the bench and he says, after that crap, you better throw a no hitter now. <laughs> so, but this, this particular game itself, um, once I got to the seventh inning, um, I remember going up in the, in the locker room, um, changing my undershirt. And um, I used to change my undershirt each, each inning, 
um, just didn't like it being wet or sticky on me. So I, I remember going up there and sitting in my locker and, and just kind of having a, a conversation, not with anybody, but just thinking to myself, it's like, okay, you've gotten this far. You've been this far before in a game. Now what I think I need to do and what I was thinking about was, okay, you need to go pitch to pitch, not out to out. And I think I had done that in the past. It's like, okay, now I need, you know, six outs to go. Now I need five outs. Now I need four outs rather than pitch to pitch. And Brent Main was behind the plate. Um, uh, and, and we got to Frank Thomas uh, for the last out. Uh, and my curveball was my third best pitch. And I actually threw a curveball to to him, a broken bat, one hopper to Terry Shumpert, second base, go to first base, and I get the no hitter. Um, but that, like I said, that particular game is like, okay, and maybe I should have done that more in my career is think pitch to pitch rather than out to out and what we need to get done. So 91, you finish up, uh, you get traded to the Mets. A little different than pitching in Kansas City. Now, now you're in – you're in the Big Apple. Big difference. Tell me about that trade. Why it happened? Um, have no idea uh, what uh, Herc Robinson, our general manager, was at the time. I do recall him coming out. I don't know. It was a few days before that. That basically said Brett. Brett's not going. There was trade rumors, and he says Brett's not going anywhere. Um, anyways, it happened. Bill Picotta and myself go to the to the Mets um, in that trade. Um, and actually, um, I was looking forward to spending my whole entire career with, with the Royals. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of grew up as a, as a ball player, I think a little bit in, in New York and just understanding the media aspect of things, because now you're in a fishbowl in New York, there's five papers. Um, when things go well, they're, uh, they're kind of boring there and there's not a lot to write about in the paper, but when uh, there can be chaos or things are you're you're not pitching well or if you're the team's losing, there's tons of stuff for them to write about and fight about. Um, so um, I learned um, then that uh, you need to uh, you know look at yourself in the mirror and basically if if you if something happens um, you got to own up to it. And I think uh, to put it into perspective for everybody that's listening. Maybe an example, and uh, say you were my, my second baseman and uh, you were out there. It's late in the game. It's a one-to-one game. It's in the, in the eighth inning, um, and uh, you happen to make an error, and um, a run scores, and now it's two-to-one. We lose the game two-to-one. Um, what I found that the, the, the New York media like to do would go right to that pitcher and go, well, what do you think about Booney making that error? You know, it kind of costs you the game. Well, what you would have to sit and contemplate is, do I just say, yeah, that kind of sucked and look like an asshole? Or do you man up and say, hey, listen, you know what? If I would have made a better pitch to the guy previous that got on base, and if I wouldn't have let him on base, that situation never occurs. So there's a lot of situations throughout entire ballgames and entire sports that can possibly change the outcome of the game um, by the person that has actually had the chance to win that game, especially a pitcher. I mean, it's comes down to pitch selection or getting a previous guy out or so on and so forth. There's so many things that could actually come up that you could make a difference in where that situation wouldn't occur. So I grew up as a player playing in New York and then also 
being in Boston was kind of the same type of media at the end of my career. But um, I, I really kind of uh, liked that, uh, um, that I was able to grow up. And yeah, we, we may, we all make our mistakes and do things and, um, and, but you, you got to own up to them. Um, you got to be upfront and honest with uh, the things that happen. Yeah, I think you touched on, you know, the, the, the scenario of, of playing defense behind you. Believe me, as a defender, uh, when you're on the mound, we're do- I'm doing everything in, in my power to save, uh, make a great play, turn that big double play. And nobody feels worse on that field when we do screw up. When we don't turn that big double play, that would have gotten you out of the inning. Or we extend, you know, we kick a ball and we extend the inning by one out. Believe me, I've had so many times where I'm just sitting there, I make an error, and I'm going, come on, come on, make a good pitch, make a good pitch. And when we get out of the inning, it's almost like relief. Uh, but then you feel great when you make a play that, that kind of saves your ass. Like, yeah, put that, put that one in the plus category. So. Yeah, it's it's Absolutely. I know what you're talking about. And, and when the media, they can skew it and, and it's just to get a headline and it's to, hey, you know, look, if we can get some controversy going on here where most of the time I haven't played with too many players. Uh, I can count them on one hand that really would undermine another teammate. Like you said, you take the high road, you say, hey, I could have made a better pitch and not put us in that position. Well, as a defender, I know that was my fault that day, but I appreciate you saying that. One day I'm going to pick you up, and, and that's what that the game's all about is picking one another up. Because I'm going to have a rough time, you're going to have a rough time, but in the end, I hope hopefully it evens out. And that's about the time that that time in you're in New York. Uh, another story I remember is that, and I believe it was that night we went out back in in Seattle. Uh, you looked at me and said, "Booney." If you make it to the big leagues, that first at bat, you face me, I'm going to throw you four seamers right down the middle. That came to fruition, and I remember Saves was on the mound, and I'm going, all right. He told me he's going to throw me cock shots. And with I go to the plate. You came through. I, I think you threw me. Three fastballs in a row. I think I was psyched out because I couldn't believe for sure I knew what was coming 100%. You weren't going to try to trick me, and I came unglued, and I think I popped. I, I might have popped it up to you, but I, but I hit it straight <laughs> up, and, and I remember you looking at me like, I told you I was going to do it. I said, you honored it, so I, I thought that was pretty cool. All right, so we talked about we got to, uh, to the Red Sox. You were there 98. Comeback player of the year. Tell me about that. Yeah, that, uh, um, yeah, I went to, uh, the Rockies. I got traded from the Mets to the Rockies. And after three games pitching, I blew out my shoulder, which I had no idea. I thought I just had to go in that off season for a little cleanup. And then, um, by May that following year, I still couldn't pick up a ball or do anything. So I went in and had uh, reconstructive surgery. So I had, surgery in uh november of 95 and then another uh reconstructive surgery in uh 96 in may um i ended up uh signing as a free agent the only time i signed as a free agent was after having uh, two surgeries in one year um (laughs) doesn't make a whole lot of sense but anyways go to the red sox um they offered me a lot of incentives if i was healthy to to um uh make a, a little bit more money than what the the Rockies were offering me. 
Um, I still rehab the following year. So uh, 97, I think I finally came back in August and was able to get a couple of games in before the end of the year, which kind of gave me a peace of mind going into that off season um, and then getting ready for, for 98 and um, 98 was, yeah, it was, it was a fun year. Um, after um, that second surgery, uh, I think I was very fortunate to have uh, pitching coaches, Joe Kerrigan, Joe Kerrigan broke things down for me. Um, and I was, I, uh, I, I, prior to that uh, and the, the scouting reports were always, this guy's a first ball fastball hitter. This guy's hot. And this guy's, um, you know, looking for this. And the, the scouting reports weren't as good as they are now. Now they're ridiculous. I mean, you can break down a pitcher or a, a hitter in, in so many different ways. But Joe actually um, made uh, me a, a pitcher rather than a thrower. Because I always, prior to that, it was like, if I have my best stuff, it's going to be fun. I mean, I'm going to go out there and have, have a, have a great game. And, you know, um, I'm going to keep my team in the ball game the whole entire game. If, if I didn't have all my stuff that particular game, it might be a little struggle, but I still felt like I could get the job done and get it to the later part of the game for a reliever. But after the surgeries that I had, I had to think a little bit more out there and set up hitters a little bit more. Um, and worked the big part of the ballpark when I was behind in the count. You know, I wasn't throwing 95 to 97 anymore. You know, I was throwing 90, 91 to 92. Um, but fortunately, I still had control. I always say that I could hit a Nats ass from 60 feet, six inches, so uh, which is the distance from the mound to the plate. So I, I always had the control, which really helped me. And, and like I said, Joe Kerrigan was really instrumental on, uh, you know, getting me to think a little bit more out there as a pitcher um, in that, uh, that year. So, um, kind of put my cap to him. That brings us to, uh, you only end up pitching three games in 2001. You end up retiring. Uh, but then comes Oh five, uh, you're inducted into the Kansas city hall of fame. Pretty cool moment. Awesome. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it, Kansas City, uh, definitely my best playing days, uh, the longest tenure I had with any team. Um, great teammates, great organization. Um, and again, I feel very fortunate to have played for really four great teams. Um, and I, I learned a lot about, uh, you know, different parts of the country and how they appreciate baseball and their fan base, which was, which was great. Um, but again, I, you know, if, 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 people look back on their career at, at, at when it's all said and done, you kind of, you kind of go back to um, where your best playing days were. And it was by far Kansas city and um, being recognized by the Royals and the organization and um, the hall of fame members and the voters and that um, was, was very special. Yeah. It was very touching. Um, and uh, just a, a, a huge honor to be uh, remembered Um that way uh and going back to kansas city always puts a smile on my face so two Cy youngs world series championship world series mvp 98 comeback player of the year and the 2005 uh kansas city royals hall of fame inductee which one means the most to you if you had to pick one well World Series championship. It's it's kind of kind of the easy one, and if anybody tells you that off of a championship team, unless unless you're you you've won like 
seven of them or something like that. Um, I don't know, you know, guys that have probably won multiple uh, uh, championships, you know, um, such as a Derek Jeter, it might be tough for him to say which moment is, is the best. But winning one championship and knowing how hard it is to actually get there, let alone winning it, um, is, is very special and very meaningful. Um, yeah, all the individual awards are, are, are great, and um, it just kind of uh, reflects on uh, how you were able to do um, in different seasons. But as you know, as it, being uh, part of a team sport, the, the ultimate is championships, and um, uh, I feel very fortunate to have won one, so that's by far um, the greatest thing that I achieved in, in baseball. All right, let's talk about Saves Wings. It's a charity you're involved with. Um, the Kind of the motto of it is lifting those in need. Uh, tell me all about Saves Wings and, and the work you're doing for them. I appreciate you bringing that up, Booney. Um, yeah, so uh, my foundation happened to be the Brett Saber Hagen Make a Difference Foundation, and it was geared towards um, youth, uh, such as autism, uh, juvenile diabetes, I sent inner city kids to uh, baseball games, um, built baseball fields, did a lot of things. Um, and the foundation was very active up until 2008. The economy goes south. Um, I decided that I'm not going to do a bunch of events and try to raise money because people are having a tough time paying their own bills. So fast forward, um, I uh, meet the love of my life, Candice, and um, she had gone through breast cancer twice previous. Um, and we've been married for two years now. Um, in that period of time, she's uh, gone through chemo um, two more times. So four times that she's um, gone through breast cancer. And um, I've seen firsthand um, the financial toxicity that cancer can cause for families. And she knows it as well. So she came to me and said, hey, I know that, uh, that your old foundation, and again, I was doing little things here and there, raising money and giving a little bit here and there, but it was on a big scale. She says, this is my idea. What do you think of it? Um, saves wings, helping those in need and making a difference for people that are going through cancer because some of these treatments that they have to go through, they have to make a decision whether they try these um, or they pay their bills. And we don't feel like anybody that is going through cancer, and it not, not necessarily just breast cancer, but cancer in general. Um, it could be a kid and their parents um, are trying to figure out, hey, um, I'd love to do this treatment, but we can't afford this treatment for, for our child because we have to pay our bills and our household bills. So that's where Saves Wings comes in. We had just, we had just kind of fired this up. It's been about five, six months now. Um, we're just kind of electing our board of uh, directors. Um, we have our first charity event coming up uh, September 19th um, in Paso Robles, um, singer-songwriter dinner. Um, we're going to give away a, a few grants to a couple of families. Um, we're going to have uh, a golf event uh, the next day. We've still got all this stuff in the works. So if you go to saveswings.com in the near future, you're going to get more information on our board members. You're going to get more information on um, uh, the events that are coming up. Um, but that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make a difference for some families that shouldn't have to make that choice of whether they want to try to make, uh, make their payments on particular household things or um, have to take care of, uh, you know, their medical bills and that. So we're going to, we're going to try to make a difference with a little bit at a time, buddy. 
All right, Sabes. Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. I want to say thank you for coming on the Boone Podcast. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, we got to get out and play some golf. But here's what we do. At the end of every Boone Podcast, we have the voice of the Boone Podcast, Dan Levy, come in for a question from the fans. Dan, take it away. Hi, Brett. How are both of you guys? Outstanding. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, this one goes to you, Mr. Saberhagen. What was it like to be Brett's dad's teammate? What was, his, what was he like as a teammate? Booney, uh, he was, he honestly, he was the salt of the earth. Um, and he, he was just honestly calm, cool, collective. Um, it just, he, he never seemed to get rattled rattled um and the receiver that he was he could frame a pitch better than anybody um and he just made it look so natural um you know a lot of catchers have to pull their gloves back in he was able to frame a pitch without even blinking he stole so many pitches that was ridiculous balls that uh there were actually balls and called strikes because of him um but just a great teammate great guy to be around and uh we still have a a, a very good relationship to this uh to this day Brad Saberhagen, not only my favorite pitcher to use in RBI baseball, but one heck of a podcast <laughs> guest as well. So thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. And I appreciate you Thanks, always being willing to come in the game and strike out my brother because we used to go at it pretty hard in RBI. And you were my favorite guy to throw in there. Yeah, a little down down under, too. I, I, and you know the thing that really upsets me about that damn RBI? It was that I didn't have the, the, the longevity. I didn't have the, I couldn't throw nine innings. You know, I was good for about five, six innings, it seemed like. And then I'd lose my, uh, my endurance. And it was like, I complete tons of games. What a, they need to boost that up. But I do hear, I do hear that a lot that, uh, I get that. Yeah. And especially my kids, Hey, you should have saw your dad in RBI baseball. <laughs> it was power, but you're right. It was usually like, I'm going to throw him into the eighth inning. And all of a sudden it was like, these, these giant strikes are just coming out of nowhere. It was awesome. <laughs> Appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We appreciate it. All right, guys. Be good. Mailbag. All right, Brett. You know that sound. It is time for the Brett Boone Mailbag. Ready to dig in? Let's do it, Danny. All right. This one comes from Marty in Baltimore. Brett, are you any good at stealing signs? No. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't, but, man, I love the guys, teammates that could steal them, and they're there were certain guys that you had to have a hundred percent trust with them because, you know, usually you got the signs from second base. If they could, they could kind of decode the the catcher and pitcher's signals, whatever, whatever formula they were using. But when certain guys, certain teammates throughout my career would come to me and say, Booney, I got the signs at second. If I'm ever on second, do you want them? I would a hundred percent say without a doubt. Uh, it wasn't very often that you get them. But the guys that were good at it, uh, you trusted them. Because you think about it, a guy's on second base, he's giving you a sign. That, that's a big situation. That's an RBI situation. To get crossed up there uh, is a tough thing. But, uh, yeah, if the right guy had him, uh, 100% I wanted to get him. And, and like I said, it, it was few and far between. Uh, but when it, when it presented itself, I was all in. All right. Thank you, Marty from Baltimore. We now head back into the mailbag. Dip into Jonathan from Tampa. And Jonathan wants to know, Brett Boone, what do bad boys really do? 
Bat boys, uh, they do a lot of stuff. I mean, you see them on the field with their uni on and they're picking up the bats and, and you know, guys today especially. You got elbow guards and shin guards and, and they're doing all the stuff on the field, but their job starts at probably noon or two in the afternoon uh, where it, where it's doing laundry, running errands, uh, shining shoes, and then after the game, you know, they've got they've got to pick up the laundry, get that going from from the game that day. So the bat boy, what you see on the field uh, for that three hours, that's just the beginning of, of all his jobs that he really has behind the scenes. Those guys work their butt off. That sounds like the worst internship I've ever heard of in my entire life. Yeah, but, you know, you think about it. Usually they're young kids and and. uh they get to be around you the know, athletes. They get yeah, to be on the field. Baseball fans, and they grow up. And you know, imagine being a uh, growing up in wherever you grow up, Boston. And and next thing you know, you're you're going to Fenway Park every day, hanging out with with the Red Sox players, and and putting a uni on and being on the field with them. I, I think it's kind of a dream for a lot of kids. It would be cool. And so you're, you see the player that you've always loved the most, and all of a sudden he's like, hey. Go shine my shoes. <laughs> yeah, but you know, most of the guys are really good to the to the kids working and, gotcha. and take care of take care of them. You know, financially, it. Uh, I don't it think it's it. a high high paying job, but I, I think that the players take care of the the kids that take care of them. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, well, that is going to do it for the Brett Boone Mailbag, and it's also going to wrap it up for the Brett Boone Podcast. We want to thank Brett Saberhagen for jumping on the pod. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director, producer, as well as the voice of this here Brett Boone Podcast. The executive producer is the one, the only Rich Herrera digital content for the Boone Podcast, all taken care of by Liz Landry. Please do us a favor. Share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast. Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show on. For all of us here on the Brett Boom Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. See you guys in a little while. Later.